The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brothers and sisters only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. It's not confession, so I won't ask for a show of hands. But as we hear the Lord say, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect, how many of us are thinking, I'd settle for just getting by? Our scripture readings today put in front of us the question of the standard of our living. And it's an important question, but we're not used to speaking of faith in terms of a standard. And yet the Lord very clearly places a standard in front of us today, beginning with our first reading. The Lord is speaking to the people through Moses, and they are just on the doorstep of crossing into the Promised Land. This is 40 years after the Exodus. The long wandering in Egypt is over. They were given the law 40 years ago and have gone through their struggle to follow it, the reality of their unfaithfulness, And yet all of that movement has brought them to the doorstep of the promised land. And here, before they cross, the Lord is speaking to them. He reminds them of the entire law. And then we basically hear the Lord say to Israel, and I didn't tell you all of this because I like the sound of my own voice. I've given you all of this for a reason. I set you free from Egypt for a reason. We often don't pause with that question of what is the reason. We like freedom. We don't like the idea that we have it for a reason. We like to be able to live. We puzzle sometimes and we're not so certain we want to hear that there's a reason we have life in the first place. And yet, the Lord never does anything without a reason. He doesn't rescue Israel from Egypt just to let them go and do whatever they want. He doesn't give them a law so that they get to pick and choose whether they follow it. 
there's a point to their freedom. There's a point to who they are as a people, and it reminds us that each and every one of us comes into this world for a reason. It's so easy to forget that, because the world puts in front of us a certain purposeless type of existence. And it encourages us to be as equally purposeless as the broad mass of society around us. And when we speak of reason for living, we are given shallow things that sound as if they might be profound. Happiness, goodness, but notice how vague it always is. Notice that there's a lack of concreteness to it. Success, status, a healthy family. On the one hand, these are all wonderful things, but if we start looking under the hood, we see that they're often empty words and empty expressions. Lovely sounding ideals that have no real substance to them. For the Lord doesn't give us life. The Lord did not set Israel free for the sake of substanceless dreaming. Rather, there's a reason, something very, very concrete. We should pause with that. In an earlier age when, as children, the faithful would have begun to learn their catechism, the very first question would have been, who made you? And the answer would be, obviously, God made me. But then the next question is telling, why did God make you? Notice how our world today shies away from that question. Why do you have life in the first place? And all of a sudden we realize, I don't get to just decide what the point of my life is. I've been given life for a purpose. Why did God make you? To know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so that I can be happy with him in the next. In other words, God made you for himself. God made you because he wants you to know him. God made you because he wants you to be with him. Note how powerful that is, that this is why we draw breath. This is why the heart beats within our bodies. This is why we are alive. Not to accumulate wealth, not to have many friends and be popular, not to be successful or famous in a worldly way. Those things are wonderful, but they're accidental. And they're not the source of real happiness. They're not the source of real meaning. They're not the source of real purpose. God made you for himself. And so there's a fundamental trajectory in our living which is ordered toward eternity. This is what Moses is reminding the people of in the desert. You're standing on the doorstep of the promised land for a reason. And the reason is not just that you go there and enjoy the fruits of the earth and be happy. Go ahead and do that, the Lord is saying. 
but don't think that that's the point. I have brought you here. I have set you free for a reason. And that reason in no small measure is that you belong to me in a way that no other people on earth belongs to me. I have set you free for myself. I have brought you first to me. And I am giving you a way to live in this land that you are about to enter so that you do not live like the nations around you, reducing yourself merely to the earthly goods you seek to acquire, merely to the earthly pleasures that you seek to enjoy, so that you don't enslave yourselves to the false values that the nations and the peoples around you give themselves over to. Because I have called you for more. And I have called you to be more than that. You were once no people, nobody. Now you are my people. You are somebody. And that means something. And so live in a way that rises to that dignity. That is why I give you this law. That is why I give you this way. And as you live in this way, the nations around will see and they will recognize a fundamental greatness about you. But they will also see as well that life is more than they thought it was. But if you don't do that, how will they see? Note how marvelous this is. Israel is called and at the doorstep of the promised land, the Lord, through Moses, reminds them you have this for a reason. And the reason is not your private comfort. The reason is not your private happiness. Go and have those things. But don't reduce yourselves ever to those things. And so it is then that we have in our gospel reading today Jesus speaking to his disciples. And what a remarkably challenging message he sets before us today. Because what does he do? He names what the world has long considered conventional wisdom. He names what lamentably all too many who style ourselves Christian hold as self-evident truth. And what does the Lord say? It's completely wrong. You have heard it said. And note, whether I've heard somebody physically say it or whether I've heard myself say it in the dark corners of my heart. And the Lord says, you have heard it said, love your friends, love your family, love those who do good to you, but feel free to harbor anger, resentment, and even hatred against those who have offended you in some way. And let's be honest. We've all heard that voice. Let's be honest. Our world and far too much of our world hears that voice as if it is the commandment from Sinai. That as long as I love my family, it's okay. I'm a good person. As long as I am good to my friends, it's okay. I'm a good person. And notice what Jesus says, 
I'm not impressed. I am not impressed that you love your family. I am not impressed that you are a good friend to people who are good friends to you. What a remarkable statement that is. It undercuts that comfortable standard we set for ourselves. And notice what the Lord says, that kind of mediocrity is not what I have come into the world for. That kind of mediocrity is not what makes you my disciple. There's a different standard. What a remarkable and dangerous for us statement that is. Why does he say that? Do you think you need a great amount of grace to be able to do that? Do you think you're so remarkable you need to be celebrated because someone is good to you and you're good to them back? That's trivial. Anybody can do that, whether they believe in me or not, whether my grace is active in their lives or not. Anyone can do that. Anyone can say, I take care of my own. Lamentably, all too many don't. But the reality is, the reality is, simply saying I'm good to my family doesn't get us very far. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. That might make you a decent human being, but it doesn't make you a good Christian. Note the difference. To be a good Christian requires something more than being a decent human being. That's the minimum. When we settle for that, Jesus is saying, what witness are we giving to the world? What do the nations look at us and see that they don't already have? What does the unbeliever see in me that he doesn't already do? He cares for his family too. He's a good friend too. Boy, that's some compelling witness we give. And so note what the Lord says. The standard for a Christian is not the standard of being a good American, a good Ecuadorian, a good resident of the city of London. It is not the standard of being simply a good person in your neighborhood. The Lord says, that's the minimum. That's the baseline. Everybody can do that. To be a good Christian requires going beyond that. That's not the reason I died for you. I didn't die for you just so that you could be a good friend. I didn't die for you so that you can simply say I take care of my own. I die for you for more than that. And why? Because what the world does is it closes itself in around a limited, real, but small amount of goodness and says, as long as I've got that, I've got everything. But note what that does. It gives me permission never to open up. It gives me permission never to grow. It gives me permission always to hold myself aloof and say, the needy one at my doorstep is not my responsibility because he's never done anything for me. That's somebody else's issue. The one who offended me 
Because I take care of my own, I have a right to be angry with that one. In other words, I have a right to cut myself off or to cut that other one off, to divide myself. We don't have to look very far. We can just look at the reality of our nation right now to see what that does. The way we polarize ourselves and divide ourselves into warring tribal factions, hunker down among our own and we only deal with our own, listen to our own, care for our own, protect our own, and if you aren't one of my own, you must be against me. And we Christians fall into that too. And Jesus is saying, no, that's what you've been listening to. But it's not correct. It's not true. And so note what he says. But I say to you, you've heard what the world says. You've heard what the selfishness and the indifference of your heart says. But I've got something else to say, which isn't that. And so know what he says. Don't be mediocre in the way the world is mediocre. Don't be narrow and self-centered in the way the world around you is narrow and self-centered. Be better than that. And then he says, be perfect. Just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Note the implication. I didn't just call to save you that you could live in whatever way. I have called you to a certain perfection in living. What an interesting notion. Perfection in living. A perfection that is only possible in me and through me. But I have called you to that because that is how you give witness to the world that you are different and that the difference that you have is rooted in me. If the world looks at you and sees no difference, how will it believe that I make a difference? Note the importance of this, how vital this is. This is how the Christian witnesses to the world by living a life that is in fact different and at the risk of being politically incorrect, is in fact better. Better than any other way to live. And what is the key to the perfect? What is the key to the better? And surprisingly, the Lord zeroes in on something that we wouldn't necessarily start with ourselves. He starts with that convenient lie that the world says. Love those who love you and you're good. And then feel free to hate those who hate you. And know what he says. That's not my way. And therefore, it can never be our way. That permission to hate another is not a permission that Jesus gives. What a remarkable statement that is. This doesn't say don't oppose what is wrong, but it is very clear. Be very careful about falling into that pattern of an angry, judgmental hatred. And so he says, consider who God is. The sun shines over the world 
and nobody has earned its light. Not the good and not the bad. He gives it to all of them. And imagine that. Even on those who have offended the Lord, the sun shines. Even on those who have turned their back on him, he gives them what they need to live. How different from us. Even on those who have rejected him, the rain falls and waters their crops too. Note how there are certain elements that the Lord looks out and says, the important standard here is not whether you're my friend or not, the important standard is what is right. And what is right is that the sun rise over you and give you the chance for another day. What is right is that the rain falls on you too. Why? Because I gave you life too, whether you deny it, whether you reject it, whether you turn your back on me. I gave you life because I love you, and I am not turning my back. Note how different that is. We turn our backs. And so the Lord says, think about the one who does offend you. Think about that person who regularly finds your last nerve and jumps on it. Think about that one who pushes your button. Think about the one who has hurt you greatly. Think about all the small nuisances you also deal with. And think about the way you keep the pot simmering in your resentment. That anger, that cutting word, always ready to boil over. And the Lord says, don't live that way. Don't be that way. He doesn't say surrender to injustice, but he does say, don't let it master you. Don't let it make you like itself. Don't let the unjust anger of this world make you another unjust and angry person. Because that's how it works. We must be different. And so note what he says. Pray. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. It's a difficult command, but it is exactly this teaching that separates Christianity apart from everything else. It separates Christianity apart from Islam. It separates Christianity from Judaism. It separates it from Hinduism. It separates it from all of the secular philosophies of the world. Love your enemies. Not Tolerate your enemies, not put up with your enemies, but actually be concerned for them. That's difficult. That is very difficult. And yet it is absolutely essential. And so the question is, well, where do we even start with that? And so again, Jesus isn't saying if you're in an abusive relationship, keep getting abused. But he is saying, be careful how you react and how you respond. Because remember, as we move toward Good Friday, who is the one who is saying this? He's the one whose hands are stretched out on that cross so that his arms are practically pulled out of their sockets, pressed down against that wood, and the nails are driven in through his hands. 
And as the world in its anger is blindly swinging those hammers, driving those nails through his hands, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Notice that Jesus isn't holding us to any standard that he doesn't live. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't say, Father, punish them. He doesn't say, Father, let me get back at them. He doesn't say, Father, they've cut themselves off. He says, Father, forgive them. That's the measure. That's the measure. It's a difficult measure. It's one we can only begin to live with his help. That's why it sets Christianity apart. It is the exact difference that Jesus makes. Anyone can do good for someone who's done him a favor. But to let the sun shine on the good and the bad alike, only God does that. And so if there are men and women who could do something like that even imperfectly, even imperfectly, those men and women become signs that God does make a difference. And in particular, that Jesus himself makes a difference. What does it mean to pray for our enemies? There's a couple ways of doing that. And so one practical suggestion. If there is somebody who's just really wounded you, and it's difficult to forgive, and that happens, that happens, then one moves slowly. But the most exhausting and least helpful way to pray for somebody who has really hurt us is to pray in a way that just makes us angry again. And it usually is, Lord, I'm, I'm praying for him, I'm praying for her, and, oh, she's so wrong in all these ways. Yeah, and know what we're doing. Know, the, minute, the minute you go down that road, look what you've just done to yourself. And we're judging and we're finding reasons to be angry again, aren't we? Don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus isn't saying camp out and live in all those things that have been, done, been wrong to you. He's trying to get us out of that. Do this instead. Lord, he's hurt me, and that's true. And the pain is real. I'm trying to forgive, and I, I'm praying for him today. And I ask you, Lord, simply, give him, give her, whatever blessing he or she most needs. And let Jesus figure it out. We don't need to know what it is that person needs to change. That's above our pay grade. We don't need to know that. He's got that. But note how different the prayer becomes. It's not an act of anger, but it's honest. It names the fact that there is a real wound here, and I'm trying to get past it. But there's also a real element of concern that recognizes you died for this one too. And I'd rather this person not be lost. Whatever blessing he or she most needs. And then it's on that other person to receive that blessing or not. But note how simple that is, and yet how healing it can be. This is what the Lord is really calling us to. 
He's not calling us to big, dramatic, symbolic actions. He's calling us rather toward that gentler perfection that God the Father shows. Silently, the sun comes up, and it sheds its light, silently but constantly, over the good and the bad. Silently, the rain clouds come in, and the rain falls with no fanfare over the good and the bad because it's right and it's good. And what is the Lord saying? Let that sunrise of love in your heart, that sunrise of goodness in your heart come up and let that light shine however it can, not just on those who are closest to you, but also on those who have wounded you in some way. It doesn't mean you have to draw close. It doesn't mean you have to expose yourself to more pain. But it does mean that there is some ability, some ability to forgive, to love, and to be concerned. Note how important that really is. Because in just a few minutes, I will be holding in my hands the very presence of Jesus, and I will hold him up for you to see. And whatever the state of our consciences is in this building, note, the sun rises over all who are here. Good, bad, just confused. The sun rises over all of us. The same light, the same mercy, the same warmth. Whether I've been attentive to the Lord and faithful to him this week or whether I've turned my back on him a dozen times this week, he's here and the light of his mercy shines on all of us. Notice how wonderful that is. And he's basically saying that's something that we all need to learn. It's a difficult teaching. It's an important teaching, but it's the big one. Because it's this one that really shows that we are, in fact, a people uniquely his own. Because without him, this doesn't work. But with him, with him it does. And when we live that with him, then we truly are living signs to this dark world. Amen.